everybody, and welcome again to Wednesday night, online only. And I'll tell you, I'm so praying that God cuts this thing short soon so we can get back together because I'm really missing. I mean, I'm getting used to the camera, but I'm missing all of you very, very much. And I want you to know that Cindy and I pray for you daily. We lift you up as well as all the church staff. Uh, We all lift you up. We know that many of you are going through a really, really tough time. Some have lost jobs. Some are struggling financially in other ways, or just you're just dealing with the loneliness of isolation and sort of not being able to go out and get around others. And this hasn't been easy. But I want to tell you where sin abounds and trouble abounds, grace much more abounds. And you're in our prayers. And again, I also want to thank you for your incredible giving during this time. Uh, It's touched my heart deeply as I've seen how God's people have come through and continue to tithe. Many of you continue to tithe and to give. And so uh, heretofore, God has helped us and held us up and we're continuing on. We've launched onto a, a national radio platform and are reaching people in every time zone uh, in over 400 radio stations across the country, each and every day, 30 minutes a day in drive time, or uh, an excellent time. Some time zones is actual drive time. A couple of other time zones, it's a it's a great time. But tens of thousands of people we're reaching daily with the good news of Jesus Christ, and so we're not letting this stop us. We're moving forward as much as God allows us to. And so we're continuing Hebrews uh, here on Wednesday nights, and tonight we're going to be doing half of chapter 10. Chapter 10 is a really long chapter. I, there's no way I could deal with the whole thing in one sitting. So we're going to deal with about the first half, and it is so good, and I'm just calling this message a better blood. Jesus' blood is a better blood. And so you, we closed out chapter 9 last time, if you'll remember, with the writer's really somber warning that it is destined for all of us to die only once, and then we face our maker. That's the way it is. There's no reincarnation, no coming back as something else. No, when you pass from this world, that's it. And that's why it's so important to get right with Christ while you're here. You will either face God with your sins washed away by the blood of his son, the writer of Hebrews tells us, or you will face him to answer for your sins at the judgment. So, very somber. But now, before we jump into chapter 10, I thought it would be good uh, that we do a quick recap because we've covered a whole lot of stuff, and it's been deep stuff because of the nature of the book of Hebrews, a lot of Old Testament references and things we needed to learn and whatnot. So I wanted to just recap a little bit. Let's just begin with the basics. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish people who had been raised in the Old Testament Mosaic system. This is all they'd ever known. This meant, for instance, that they were totally acclimated to the Old Testament Levitical priesthood that sprang out of Aaron, who was Moses' older brother, when Aaron was anointed the very first high priest at the inauguration of the tabernacle in the wilderness. So Aaron was the first high priest. And then every high priest after him for 1,200 years had gone into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and offered a sacrifice first for himself and then for the sins of the people. 
And this is what the Jewish people that the writer is addressing were used to. This was their DNA. This was their religious makeup. They didn't know what we know. They had no idea of church or worshiping God the way we do, or they had no new covenant, uh, no knowledge of being filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, all the things that came to us through the sacrifice of Christ, they were totally ignorant of, but they, they did know the Mosaic Old Testament sacrificial system. And so uh, there were other priests as well as the great high priest. The great high priest went in, offered the sacrifices once a year, but under him were plural priests, a plurality of priests who the Bible says always went, meaning every day into the tabernacle, the holy place, not the holy of holies, but into the holy place to do the service of God. And what was the service of God? Well, it included burning the incense at the morning and the evening sacrifices, dressing the lamps, making sure that the lamps always had oil, that the fire in the lamps never went out, which was a type and shadow and picture of God's will for us, that once the oil of the Holy Spirit is placed in us, it it, it lights a fire. It lights a holy fire. We call it zeal for the works of the Lord and for the Lord of hosts. And they were to keep oil in these lamps that they never went out. And they changed the showbread every Sabbath morning, so on and so forth. This is what the Jewish people, the writer of Hebrews is addressing, were totally and completely used to, again, for 1,200 years. So well over a millennium of time, this is what they knew. So their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, their distant descendants, they all knew only this Old Testament sacrificial system headed up by priests. Now, how did they view God during this time? Well, God was scary in a way. They they feared God. He was more a distant deity uh, that only the high priest could approach. The high priest approached once a year in that Holy of Holies, and there in that Holy of Holies was the Shekinah glory of God. But the people didn't get to go in there. The, the, The plurality of lesser priests, they didn't get to go in there. The thought of having a personal relationship with God was foreign to Old Testament people. Uh, Later on in chapter 12, for instance, the writer describes the way God was viewed by the Hebrews. He says in Hebrews 12, verse 18, you have not had to stand face to face with terror, flaming fire, gloom, darkness, and a terrible storm like the Israelites did at Mount Sinai when God gave them his laws. Look how God is, look how they saw God. He was, he was a, a, a terror, flaming fire, gloom, darkness, thunder, lightning, flashing. It was a scary thing. And then it says in verse 19, there was an awesome trumpet blast and a voice with a message so terrible that people begged God to stop speaking. You don't know about you, but I love it when God is speaking. But back then they begged God to stop because it was a terrifying thing, the way God manifested himself. It says in verse 20, they staggered back under God's command that if even an animal touched the mountain, it must die. Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he shook with terrible fear. Now I ask you, is this description of God one that invites personal relationship? No, we want to get far away from a God like that. It's a scary thing. 
So in his long letter to the Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is contrasting the Old Testament God, how difficult it was to draw near to him, what a frightening thing it was to come into his presence. When he spoke, when he addressed them, he's comparing that God and that covenant to the new covenant that God cut for us through the shed blood of his son, which is better in every way. And that's what the book of Hebrews is about. The writer of Hebrews is constantly comparing the Old Testament God, the Old Testament covenant with the New Testament, the new covenant cut by God through the shed blood of Jesus. And the one word that sums up Hebrews is better. In chapter one, he tells us Jesus is better than the angels. In chapter two, Jesus offers a better salvation. In chapter three, Jesus is better than Moses. In chapter four, Jesus offers a better rest. In chapter five, Jesus is a better high priest. In chapter six, Jesus offers a better promise and a better hope. In chapter seven, Jesus is better than the high priest Melchizedek. In chapter eight, Jesus authored a better covenant. In chapter nine, Jesus is a better mediator. And today, chapter 10 informs us that Jesus offered a better sacrifice and shed a better blood. You ought to just say better wherever you are. Just say better. Our our covenant is better. Our Savior is better. What God has done for us is better in every way. Thank God for better. Now, we've also seen, just recapping before we begin chapter 10, that the Old Testament feasts and sacrifices and rituals, the ark, the manna, the festivals, all that was established, in the first five books of Moses uh, called the Pentateuch, all these things were only types and shadows, and we could say fuzzy pictures of what was coming. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. God was constantly teaching his people and by default teaching all of us Gentiles what he was going to finally and ultimately do through Jesus. So you can think of the Old Testament as sort of a hall of mirrors reflecting Jesus at every turn, pointing to his coming, pointing to his death on the cross, where the pure, spotless, superior blood of the ultimate lamb of God was going to be shed for you and me. So that's, that's what Hebrews is all about, showing us why God did those things, established the tabernacle, the temple, all the feasts and all of that. It was all pointing like signs to the coming of Jesus Christ. So the continual theme of Hebrews is to say to the Jewish people that were considering Jesus as Savior, or many of them had already done so, don't return to the shadows. Don't ever go back to the Mosaic system. You now have the real thing, and his name is Jesus. So let's begin chapter 10 now. And that's how chapter 10, verse 1 begins. Let's read it. The old system of Jewish laws, he writes, gave only a dim foretaste of the good things Christ would do for us. The sacrifices under the old system were repeated over and over again, year after year. But even so, they could never save those who lived under their rules. Catch that now. Even though they made these sacrifices yearly, day of atonement yearly, It says very clearly here, they could not save those who lived under their rules. Couldn't do it. 
If they could have, then one offering would have been enough, he says in verse 2. The worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and their feeling of guilt would have been gone. But just the opposite happened. Verse 3, those yearly sacrifices reminded them of their disobedience and of their guilt instead of relieving their minds of their guilt. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats really to take away sins. Again, God let all that happen. He established all those rituals to tell us one day the ultimate lamb of God will shed his blood. In the meantime, all of these sacrifices are imperfect. They don't cleanse the conscience of guilt and they don't save. But it was they were signposts pointing to the real thing. So again, we see that the Old Testament sacrificial system was completely insufficient in truly cleansing away the sins of the people. Every time yet another lamb was slain for their sins on yet another day of atonement, rather than feeling relieved, they were reminded of their ongoing sinfulness and their guilt was never fully taken away. So next, the writer tells us that Christ's death on the cross was God's final solution for sin and that his death fulfilled God's will. God had a final solution. And that final solution was Jesus. And once the final solution, Jesus Christ shed his blood, the writer of Hebrews tells us there was never another need for another shedding of blood. That was it. It was a once for all sacrifice. Now, in verses 5 through 7 of chapter 10, he's going to quote the psalmist David. So let's begin at verse 5. Therefore, the writer says, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, now he's about to quote David, quote, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin You had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Now, verse 7 slips into major messianic prophecy. Because now, it's as if Jesus himself were saying, then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book, talking about the Old Testament, particularly the first five books, Moses prophesied of the coming of Jesus, as did the rest of the Old Covenant, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all of them. He says, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. In the Old Testament, it's written of me over and over again that I have come to do your will, O God. That's the voice of Jesus. So even though David wrote these words, he was actually uttering messianic prophecy that the writer of Hebrews applies directly to Jesus. It tells us that Jesus was fully aware that Old Testament sacrifices and offerings were not what God desired to fully deal with sin. He required the body of his only begotten son and Jesus from early on knew that that was him. Now let's look at verse eight as we continue. And after Christ said this about not being satisfied with the various sacrifices and offerings required under the old system, he then added, here I am. 
Now, you ought to say, wherever you are, here I am. Because these words of Jesus, I mean, the psalmist wrote it, but it was, it was a prophecy. It's almost Jesus speaking first person through David, saying, here I am. I have come to give my life. Now, this is Psalms 40, centuries before Christ. But here, David is in the spirit. And, you know, as I was reading this today in in preparation for this teaching, I was really deeply touched all over again of what Jesus did. He knew what he was going to experience on the cross, the unimaginable suffering, the beating, the whipping, the hair being torn out, the beard being plucked out, the mocking, the ridicule, um, his back laid open with the smiter's whip for our healing. He knew what awaited him. But folks, and it's hard to wrap your mind around this, but let's try. Before God first said, let there be light, which was the first thing he made, light, there was a council in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost got together. God knew we were going to sin because it says in Ephesians, for instance, that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So before God laid the foundation, Christ was chosen to die for us and we were chosen in him. Now I know that's a, that'll take your mind and twist it into a pretzel, but it's true. And as the Godhead met and they knew, God knew that man was going to sin, Jesus spoke the words we just read that David wrote down prophetically by the spirit. Jesus said, here I am. I have come to give my life. Well, I read that and it took me to another verse in Hebrews that says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation as that, that the son of God would say, here I am. I come to give my life and gave his life and suffered for us and died for us. And what we're about to celebrate in a few days, he rose again from the dead for us. He did all of that for us. And if he did that for us, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Well, it goes on to say in verse 9, he cancels the first system, that is Jesus, cancels the first system, the Old Testament sacrificial system, in favor of a far better one. There's that word again, better. Under this new plan, we have been forgiven and made clean by Christ dying for us once and for all. So there's another better in Hebrews, and it's a better sacrifice. The Bible says that Jesus, when he died for us, it was a better sacrifice. You could take all the bloodshed for those 1,200 years, every animal that had to give its life for the sacrifices God established put it all together in one place, in one container, and it cannot hold a distant flicker to the precious, better blood of Christ and the better covenant his blood cut for us. Thank God. The writer continues in verse 11. Let's look at verse 11 with once again comparing the superiority of Jesus to the Old Testament priesthood. The writer of Hebrews wants to be sure the Jewish people that are reading this long letter really get it, that they really understand. Hey, guys, the great high priest Jesus 
totally eclipses the old priesthood under Aaron and under the Levites, Jesus totally, totally overshadows them and eclipses them and is better than them. So in verse 11, he begins, and every Old Testament priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the very same sacrifices over and over again, which can never fully take away sins. But this man, capital M, Jesus, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice once for all for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Verse 14, I love this. For by one offering, he has perfected forever. Now, I want to stop a minute. I want you to stop and think with me that if you have come to Christ by faith and he's your savior, you've been born again, I would want to tell you, based on verse 14, you have been perfected forever. That is, your sins have been dealt with forever. No one's ever going to have to die for you again. No sacrifice is ever going to have to be offered again for you or me. We have been perfected forever. Those who are being sanctified, and that's you and me. We are daily being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we have been perfected forever. So you ought to say what Jesus said on the cross. Jesus said, it is finished. We can say that now too. My perfection, that is, my sins being washed away, it's finished. It is forever. It's done. Thank God Jesus' death on the cross doesn't ever have to be repeated. It was a perfect once for all sacrifice for our sins and we've been perfected forever, not just until the next animal sacrifice is made, which is the way the Old Testament folks always had to look at it. Well, I'm okay till the next sacrifice. We don't have to do that. Our sacrifice has been made once for all. Now next, the writer goes from quoting David to quoting Jeremiah. And I want you to notice that he calls the writings of Jeremiah the witness of the Holy Spirit. So before I read it, let me just reiterate what the Bible says about itself. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now the word inspiration is from a compound Greek word, theonoustos, theo God, noustos, breathed out. And it's literally telling us that God, now I'm speaking. I can't speak breathing in. I can only speak breathing out. Words are uttered as we are exhaling. It's telling us that God breathed out. He uttered, he breathed out every word. It says all scripture, not part of it, not some of it, not most of it, not cherry picking the parts we like. All scripture from Genesis to Revelation, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, 66 in all, a love letter from God to us. They were all, every word breathed out as God spoke, as God breathed out, he spoke. So we're not reading the writings of Jeremiah per se. Jeremiah is secondary. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through Jeremiah. So look what it says in verse 15. The writer writes, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, now in verse 16, he's quoting Jeremiah. 
after he had said before, quote, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now that is when Jeremiah, by the Holy Spirit, predicted what the new covenant was going to do for you and me. He's telling us that not only are our sins going to be washed away, totally washed away, finally, truly washed away, but it's also promising God's going to give us an, a brand new nature. I will put my laws into their hearts. Well, where did God put the first law? Not in the hearts of the children of Israel. He wrote them, it says, the finger of God etched his laws onto stone tablets. And Moses took those two stone tablets and brought them to the people and showed them the Ten Commandments. So the first time God wrote his law, it was on stone. But here Jeremiah is saying, when the new covenant comes, it's not going to be written on stone. God's word is not going to be written on stone, but on the hearts of those who put their faith in his son. The Holy Spirit will come to live inside of them, and God will change their nature. He will write his word onto their heart. See, I, I like to say salvation is an inside job. It's not something external where you say, well, I'm going to follow these rules and regulations. That was old covenant. The new covenant is God comes to live inside of you and me. And when he does, he writes his law, not on stone tablets, but on the tablet of our heart. That means we have a new nature. Second Corinthians 5.17, if any person, any man, any woman be in Christ, he or she is a brand new creation. Brand new creation, a new nature, a new you. And this is not self-improvement we're talking about, nor rehabilitation, nor a New Year's resolution. He's saying, I'm going to change you, fundamentally transform you on the inside. When you look and receive my son, I'm going to send my spirit into your heart. And he is going to write my word on your heart so that you on the inside want to do the will of God, desire to please God. Take his word into yourself internally and, and, and assimilate it as part of your nature. That's the promise of the new covenant. Boy, listening to that, you got to say that's better. That's better than the old covenant where they tried to obey God, but their nature had never been changed. So it was just a, a drag, a, a, to use an old word from the 70s, it's a bummer. It was tough. It was impossible. But God said, no, when you accept my son now in the new covenant, brand new nature, it contains the glorious promise that God is going to change us on the inside. I'm so glad that when I came to Christ, God changed Jeff Wickwire in here. And if you've never come to Christ and you're watching maybe with a family sitting in the living room and you know, you're shut away because of this coronavirus thing, let me ask you, have you ever thought that Christianity is not a, a rule book? It's not some, some book of rules and regulations you accept and decide that you're going to be a better person? No, that's not what it is at all. Christianity is an inside job where God transforms you. All you got to do is say, Jesus, come into my heart 
and he will come in and immediately your nature will be changed. Look at verse 18. He says, now where there is remission of these, that is our sins, there's no longer an offering for sin. Now, here's what he means by that. If the pardon is complete under Jesus, if Jesus' blood really does wash away your sins, really does handle the sin issue, then there's no longer any need for the Levitical sacrifices. This is what we might call the grand finale of the writer's argument in this verse right here, chapter 10, verse 18. This is the grand finale of everything he's been saying. If Jesus' blood is sufficient, if it's efficacious, and that means totally successful in washing away your sin, then the Old Testament, no longer, that the old covenant system of sacrifices is no longer needed. That's what he's telling these Jewish people. The Old Testament system of sacrifices is now passe. You don't need to go there anymore. There's a better blood, a better mediator, a better priest, a better covenant, a better way, a better solution. Now, the writer next shows us how to respond. How do you respond to incredible news like this? I can get a new nature. My sins can be washed away. I've been made right with God. He's no longer scary to me, but Jesus told me he was now my father in heaven. So how do I respond to this? He says in verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, catch that word boldness, to enter into the holiest, he's referring to the holy of holies that only the great high priest could go into under the old covenant. He's saying now because of Jesus' blood, you can boldly enter into the very presence only the high priest ever went into by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Well, it gets better. Verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God, that is Jesus Christ, let us draw near, draw near, not back away in fear, but now let's draw near, not fear, but near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, see, we can do what those in the old covenant could not have imagined. We can confidently and boldly draw near to God with hearts sprinkled with the blood of Jesus that has cleansed our guilty conscience. You can do that wherever you are, in your car, in your living room, wherever you might, in your office, wherever you are. At any moment, the believer in Jesus Christ, washed in the blood, can just lift hands and begin to worship God and enter into his presence, the presence only the high priest knew before. If you'll recall, speaking of that word, boldly entering into his presence, boldly, if you'll recall, in chapter 4, he's already told us that the blood of Jesus has made possible a bold entrance on our part into God's presence. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Notice, I don't go into God's presence cringing. I don't go into God's presence terrified. 
No, I go into God's presence boldly because the blood of Jesus has so efficaciously, so successfully washed my sin away, I have no fear in God's presence. What a great, great word. He says in verse 22, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now that's talking about water baptism and what it represents. Water baptism symbolizes our brand new life. So we enter into God's presence with a conscience cleansed, with a brand new nature, with a brand new life, with a brand new boldness, with a brand new confidence because of what Jesus' blood has done for you and me. You know, I almost want to say, let's stop a minute and let's just lift our hands wherever we are in our living room, wherever. Let's just lift our hands a moment and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you did. Let's do it today. Can we just do that? Jesus, thank you for what the blood accomplished. Thank you that you pulled me out of hell. Thank you, Lord, that you washed my sins away. Thank you that the terrible, tormenting guilt that stalked me in days gone by has been washed away. Thank you for a brand new nature, Lord. We praise you that we can come into your presence knowing you love us, knowing that the blood has cleansed us, and knowing that we are fully accepted in the Father in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Lord, thank you that we can call you Father because of what Jesus did. Amen. Give the Lord a hand right where you are. Just thank him right there. Amen. Praise God. Then the writer, as we come to the close of our message tonight, the writer repeats an exhortation very familiar to the book of Hebrews. He says in verse 23, let us hold fast. Say that with me. Hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Now that little phrase, hold fast is, as I've already said, very common. It's something we find a lot in Hebrews. It's one of his repeated exhortations to us to once we know these things that we have been talking about tonight, once we really get a hold of what Jesus has done, we need to keep a very tight grip on it. For instance, going back to chapter three, verse six, he says, he says, hold firmly, hold firmly. In chapter three, verse 14, he says, hold your conviction firmly. In chapter four, verse 14, hold firmly to the faith. And now in chapter 10, verse 23, hold fast your confession. So we're exhorted to hold our conviction, hold tightly to our faith. Hold tightly to our confession. We're to keep a tight grip on Jesus and everything his shed blood has accomplished for us. Hold it tightly. You know, when you find something valuable, you keep a tight grip on it. I I can remember as a kid, I I loved playing marbles. And one of the best marbles you could get, it it was rare, was an agate, an agate marble. And if you happen to get an agate shooter or boulder, which is bigger than the normal size marble, then you had a major treasure, an agate shooter or an agate boulder. And some of you are grinning right now because you remember uh, doing the same thing. And I remember one time I was able to get an agate boulder. And I remember going out to the street with all of my marbles. We would go out there and we would shoot marbles up and down the curves. And the deal was, if you hit somebody else's marble, then you got to keep it. And I remember thinking, there is no way I'm turning loose of this agate boulder 
that somebody might hit it and take it away from me. I held it tight. And that's a simple illustration of this. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price. And once you find it, then you hold tight to it and you sell everything else you have in order to purchase that pearl and make that pearl your own. And once you do, you hold it tight. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is telling us in our final, final moments together. Hold your conviction that Jesus is the Savior firmly. Hold firmly to your faith in him. Hold tightly to your confession that you're saved, that his blood has covered you, that you're a child of God. Hold it tightly and don't ever let the devil steal it. And so what a great word. And that's it for now. And I want to encourage you to just go over what we've covered tonight. And next time we're going to finish chapter 10, where the writer is going to turn our focus on the caring for one another. And boy, is this going to be relevant, particularly with what we're all having to endure right now with this attack. Let me pray for you as we go. Father, thank you for touching the precious people of God. I pray that in this time of trial and hardship and difficulty, help us to take to heart these words of the writer of Hebrews, to hold tightly, hold fast, hold firmly, to the faith that is in Jesus Christ. And Lord, thank you that you're going to carry us through this valley. We're not going to stay in this valley. We're not going to build a house in this valley. We're not going to pitch tent in this valley. No, we're passing through this valley to the other side. Thank you, Lord, that you're going to get us there. And thank you that you're, you remain the Lord of the storm. You're not releasing or relinquishing your grip on us. As we hold firmly to you, you're holding even more firmly to us. And Lord, we thank you for the peace of God. And I pray the peace of God over every household, every person, every member of this church, and every one of the children of God all throughout the United States of America and the world. We pray for President Trump, Lord, that you will strengthen him and give him wisdom and surround him with good people to make the best decisions. And we continue to agree together, Lord, that you will shorten the days of this plague and have mercy on America. And we thank you, Lord, for bringing many into the kingdom of God as so many are now thinking about their mortality and the need to get their soul right with the Lord Jesus. And I thank you for it, Lord, and I commit the people to you as we close in Jesus' name, amen.